school's always going to be a hard place when you're the minority because like i said before you have that immaturity of young kids and then you mix it with something that they are not used to or don't see as normal and all of a sudden you've got this absolute breeding ground for bullying do you think as you got older that got better the, um it i was badly bullied in year 11 that's because i was in a group of friends that turned out later to be toxic and so it did get better, but the the experiences of the bullying and the sense of fundamental separation never went away. I had the thought of, I want to die. I want to get out of here. I can't, I cannot go on. And then I thought I was experiencing quite severe distress. My nose was bleeding. Wow. So it was hideous, quite frankly. And after crying on my own in an overheated room with a bleeding nose, I had to be escorted to the uni counselling service because I didn't trust myself to feel safe. A toxic relationship involves lack of communication about boundaries, lack of mutual respect. Make sure you communicate your boundaries clearly and fairly. Make sure you communicate your expectations and things that you like and don't like. But most importantly, trust your intuition. You will know if you are in an environment that is not good for you. You will intuitively understand that even in year 11, this isn't right. Welcome back to the Post School Podcast, the life guide you didn't even know you needed. This is your chance to learn about all the wacky, wonderful, inspiring, and downright insane stuff that normal people like you and I have done after high school. The Post School Podcast aims to leave you feeling motivated to chase your dreams by dispelling the myth that life is mediocre. Through the stories of incredible people who are doing incredible things with their lives, you and I will learn just how not boring life really is in the big wide world. Are you ready? Let's go. Alex, thank you for joining me on the Post School Podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. So let's start with a little bit about who you are. Do you want to give us a little rundown? So I'm a nearly 23-year-old law and psychology student, budding lawyer and disability advocate from Adelaide, South Australia. So the reason I got into the space that I am now is partly because I'm a bit of a non-conformist. I love, I love learning. I'm, I'm somewhat academically rigorous. And I thought that maybe my, that my, in my life, I could make some tiny difference to the world, no matter how small that might actually be. Wow, that's really cool. What uni are you at? So I'm at the University of Adelaide and I study a Bachelor of Laws and a Bachelor of Psychological Sciences. Cool. Is that something that you knew you wanted to do from high school or did you sort of figure it out towards the end? It was like the best things in life. It came together sort of at the last minute. I knew that becoming being a lawyer at 16 was an option. I was sort of weighing up between do I go into finance, do I go into secondary teaching or do I pick law? And so... I was sort of laying the groundwork for this when I was doing debating between 2012 and 2016. I'm quite old by Uncle Nathan's standards, having graduated five years ago. <laughs> yeah, mate, you're prehistoric. Oh, look at these designer eye bags. They're all Gucci here, mate. <laughs> but the point is, I I just sort of, I developed the skills quite naturally. I developed a love for public speaking and debating quite early. And even though I didn't get the ATAR to get into law, immediately after graduating school, I just fell into it. Mm. I want to know more about who you are. What, what was childhood like? Where have you grown up? What do you do for fun? Tell me about you. Okay, so from first impressions, I'm basically taking disability out of the equation entirely. I'm literally a white boy from Adelaide, Southeastern suburbs. That is it. Nice. My, 
My, my childhood, however, was quite polarizing. I had some incredibly joyful moments having grown up in the greenery of the Adelaide Hills. So located just outside of Adelaide proper, about 10, 10 to 10 kilometers away. I had, a, I used to spend a lot of my early childhood running around my garden, learning how to use the walker for the first time. Thank, thank you, Sarah Pauly. And just generally being a kid in the best possible way, especially building cubby houses out of mattresses in the basement of my next door neighbor. That mm. is peak early 2000s childhood in Australia. <laughs> That's it. If you didn't make a few cubby houses in your time, you weren't really living as a kid in Australia. Exactly. And if you, and I still remember, I still remember watching Bananas in Pajamas on VHS tapes. Like, this is where I was at. However, yeah. my childhood became significantly harder once I sort of around the ages of four to five when I started primary school. And often in childhood development, the ages of think, one to 10 are particularly crucial because that's when children start developing a sense of self-concept. And so I had a particularly nasty reception teacher who chastised me every single time I was late. She would choose to get quite close to my face and yell at me. And I also started just experiencing bullying because I was one of my, a minority of classmates who needed to use a wheelchair. Hmm. So I would have, I would just be confronted quite often. I would be told that I was, I would be picked on physically. I think there may have been a time where I was accidentally thrown out of my wheelchair. So I was just made to feel like I didn't belong in the same way that an able-bodied peer did. And I really felt this fundamental sense of deep separation from the rest of my classmates. Yeah, best, right. The best way I can describe this is it's like walking around in a glass bubble. You can see out, but no one can see in. Huh. That must have been scary. It was scary because I think this was particularly true true when I was confronted with the reality of PE for the first time. I remember sitting on my oval, I was at six or seven at the time, and I was just filled with this incandescent rage because I could see other people, other kids playing footy and thinking, why can't I do that? What is, what is so wrong with me that I have to, that I have to sit in a wheelchair watching other people doing the very thing that I want to do? And so there was a lot of confusion around, well, I've got this, I've got this, I'm aware that I've got this disability. I'm aware that I've been told by various members of, members of society that this thing is a bad thing. And my reaction to that is to feel anger. Yeah, right. You know what I love about you, though, is the fact that you've just spent the last five minutes describing who you are. And not once did you say, I am Alex and I have this disability. See, like you, you don't define yourself by that disability. And I think that's super empowering in itself. So we haven't even touched on it. It's probably worth okay. mentioning what is, is the actual Sorry. disability that you I've have. Just leapt, I've just leapt right into a significant childhood event without giving you the context. But no, I but think... it's good because it shows, it shows the impact. It shows how you think. And I like that thinking. So my disability is I have spastic cerebral palsy or cerebral palsy. So we might have to cut this so I can explain the term. But I've got level three cerebral palsy with spastic diplegia. So in English, this means level three refers to a walking scale. So I have to walk with an aid. I might just turn my laptop around so that you can see that I have a walker. Right, wow. This is it. 
this is the machine that gets me from A to B and means that I'm not just a pile of marshmallows lying in a bed. <laughs> so, and it affects my ability to coordinate my muscles and coordinate and coordinating my balance and my ability to move around the world. So the way I'm sitting right now might appear quite rigid and the way that, and the reason I'm doing that is because it's just a way to keep myself stable without wanting to fall over. In simple terms, I have to work about three times as hard as an able-bodied person to do the same things that an able-bodied person can do. Wow. That's tough. That's really tough. And is this, has it got progressively worse throughout your childhood or did it start the same and it's just stayed the same or has it got better? I'm going to dive into it a little bit because there are a few key areas that my condition is stable. It's non-degenerative and it just That's requires good. me taking extra care of myself. The easiest way to describe it is nearly 23 from waist up, 73 from waist down. <laughs> I like that you're lighthearted about it. Oh, you get two people for the price of one. <laughs> That's not a bad one. I like very, that. Very, which, very which half do you prefer? Which half do you prefer? Oh, depends. Depends on the day. <laughs> nice. How did? Yeah, actually, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper. The childhood, because for a lot of kids, you can see that like that lack of maturity would lead to some pretty significant bullying and stuff for you. Was that hard? Did you have to? develop oh, thick skin or did you already have that thick skin it was extremely hard i had to develop that thick skin and i want to qualify it by saying that developing thick skin does not necessarily mean that you have overcome or have dealt with the underlying issue it just means that you have mastered from your conscious awareness hmm. so if we use it in it was it was really tough i remember feeling just this fundamental sense of not being good enough i was in what the psychologist and meditation teacher tara brock calls the transfer unworthiness and I just felt so inferior and this was despite my school having a link program for other students with disabilities it just sort of felt like it was a collective but not in this the group that in the sense that I needed right so Were there other kids like you at school yes but I I think I was I struggled to outside of certain contexts, I struggled to relate. So in typical Australian public schools, you have a team of SSOs or student support officers that work with primary school age children to help achieve the sort of developmental, social, academic goals. This was partly successful. I had an, inc had an incredible SSO who actually took the time to get to know me for basic Tai Chi and relaxation techniques and really just engaged me as a person. And I think mm. that was one of the first times I felt seen as a person with a disability. So it's really contextual and very difficult to describe how the, the negativity is not all inclusive. There are bright spots, but that is the parts that I remember most clearly. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I mean, school's always going to be a hard place when you're the minority, because like I said before, you have that immaturity of young kids and then you mix it with something that they are not used to or don't see as normal. And all of a sudden you've got this absolute breeding ground for bullying. Do you think as you got older, that got better? The, um, it, I was badly bullied in year 11. That's because I was in a group of friends that turned out later to be toxic. And so it did get better, but the, the experiences of the bullying and the sense of fundamental separation never went away. Mm. It was always, I was always made in some ways to feel socially different. Like I was never invited to parties or I was never, 
I do participate in sports day, but it was just sort of, it was never quite, there was always that thin layer of separation that people were never willing, really willing to bridge. Yeah. Yeah, that must be tough, dude. I want to dump it, jump into the year 11 friend group. At, at what point did you realize that that was a toxic group of friends? And I think most importantly for people listening, how did you go about breaking away from that friend group? I think people, we need to start with why people make friends in the first place. So humans are fundamentally a social creatures. We, we need to feel a sense of belonging and we need to feel a sense of psychological safety in our environments. And often that means interacting with people. Where friendships turn toxic is when someone tries to use their personal autonomy to overpower them, that of others, to get a certain, to get a certain way, not respecting boundaries, hmm. having a complete lack of self-awareness. I think a toxic relationship involves lack of communication about boundaries, lack of mutual respect, the person wanting to be better or worse than other people and really feeding their own it's it's a maladaptive way for them to come to their own worthiness Mm. because in trying to assert dominance or project certain viewpoints they believe that requires tearing somebody else down and the further you go into adulthood the more subtle this becomes so for anyone listening i would say Make sure you communicate your boundaries clearly and fairly. Make sure you communicate your expectations and things that you like and don't like. But most importantly, trust your intuition. You will know if you are in an environment that is not good for you. Mm. You will intuitively understand that even in year 11, this isn't right. And even if you don't know what Let's say we're past all that. What does someone do to get out of that situation? I think... It comes to work. It comes down to worthiness. Often, people in high school friendship groups, their identities are still developing and their self-concept is still developing. So, in high school, if you are seen to be an outcast, that is that might equate to someone as social death. So, to avoid the uncertain, unknown outcome of wanting to be isolated people stay in relation in high school friendship groups that aren't good for them because at least it gives them a fleeting sense of belonging. So to get out of a friendship group like that, I think first of all, know your worth, know that you are worthy. And I think that's quite a difficult process. It wasn't something I confronted until my early twenties, but understand that as a person, you have this inalienable dignity that cannot be taken away by anyone or anything. Mm. And when we and we move when we move from that place of worthiness, we start and we start to recognise that that is even there. We can then start to challenge some of the constructs in that group, if not the beliefs that drive it. How did you? I guess how did you discover your worth? Like how did you feel worthy in yourself after you had people like giving those harsh comments and whatnot growing up? I didn't. In short, I didn't. I just sort of accepted it as normal. It was an experience and I moved on. So in a really Fair subtle enough. way, I was I probably repressed it because it was too difficult. I didn't have the tools needed to face that. Right. And they came in the later years and then looking back, reflecting on those experiences, you've been able to articulate what was happening. 
a lot of my problems didn't really resurface until I was actually started law school and was a fair way into it, I think. So for context, I started law school in mid-2017. I had done a semester of an arts degree and thought, okay, I'm ready for law. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready at all. And I think <laughs> I was not used to the pace that the content was taught. I felt like everybody was smarter than me. I and I and it was really really difficult. I didn't actually understand there was a problem until I took my first exam. It was principles of public law, and I was writing an exam answer, and I was starting to have very. I was starting to have panic attacks. Well, wow. as I was trying to articulate something, it just felt. I felt hot. I felt sweaty. I felt as if something was something incredibly bad was about to happen. I remember running out of the room, going to the bathroom, eating an entire Mars bar, and then coming back in. Wow. <laughs> and it just got progressively worse. And I got my grade back. I was like, oh, I got a credit. This sucks. Yeah. So I started to define my worth based on external things like grades, how I presented, and how, what people thought of me. And so the panic continued throughout every single war exam I had ever taken. Mm. A particularly bad and hideous example was contracts. I did fail that and I had to take it again. Rough. So it meant that I could never get anything above a pass or a credit effectively because I couldn't, I was flipping through my notes trying to write and trying to put the pieces of a puzzle together. Every time I looked at it, it changed. And because I was right. afraid, um, the neuroscience behind this is sort of when you're in fight, flight, freeze which is the response. When you go into panic, you actually, it shuts off the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain responsible for logical planning and thinking. Right. Or it severely inhibits it. So I wasn't able to write articulately. I think the worst example of this was a couple of years ago. It was two weeks before Christmas and I was sitting in my corporate law stuff exam because I had, I'd had a panic attack in the previous one. And the compound effects of all the previous times I had taken exams put so much pressure on me to be perfect and to study really, really, really hard, which I did, which is, and then my thoughts became incredibly dark as I was writing a section on insolvency. And I thought, and it, I had the thought of, I want to die. I want wow. to get out of here. I can't, I cannot go on. And then I thought I had to just, I had to let the problem. Okay. I need to stop. I'm in, I was experiencing quite severe distress. My nose was bleeding. Wow. So it was hideous, quite frankly. And after crying on my crying on my own in an overheated room with a bleeding nose, I had to be escorted to the uni counselling service because I didn't trust myself to feel safe. Wow. And this is all stemmed because you felt that grade defined who you were effectively so i developed a lot of coping mechanisms like i was highly perfectionistic i was highly motivated i would all i would do was study wow i think that speaks a lot about uni in general because i think not to the severity that you suffered from it but i think a lot of people go into uni and are shocked after coming from high school where it's not too hard to be at the top because you're at a school with maybe 300 other students in your grade max and it's not that hard to outcompete but then 
when you get thrown into uni, you're sort of in the deep end. You're that little fish again in this huge ocean and you're struggling to really make a name for yourself because you realize that there are so many intelligent people around you and these subjects have content that is really difficult. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that uni isn't about being the best. It's about getting through with that degree and then creating a name for yourself in the profession that you're at uni to seek out. I think you're absolutely right because so many people come in this they create this identity. For example, I'm the smart kid. In this mm. case, I'm a sort of smart disabled kid. So I thought in order to live up to this belief, I had to do everything right. So I would study incredibly hard. I would, I would have no breaks. I basically embodied the best and the worst elements of hustle culture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So of course that had impacts because then, then I would burn out. I wasn't taking care of my physical needs. And then I would wonder why come exam time 12 weeks after this process had started why this was happening mm. and even though i had gone to therapy previously to try and fix the issue nothing had worked so that was really the starting point was okay i've already started with a new psychologist about a few weeks beforehand but this is where it really gets serious and i yeah. think so you have to let go really of who you think you should be to become who you are. And I think wow. in, in law school, particularly it's quite, I would say it's borderline toxic because you've got these very high achieving people, like the cutoff for law at Adelaide is 95.5 as an ATAR. You see, you've got yeah. the top four and a half percent of high school graduates or a selection of who go in, who think, wow, this is going to be a piece of cake and it's not. Mm. So first you slapped me around the face very hard. <laughs> Sounds like it. I'm surprised you um continued on after first year. Was that a hard obstacle to overcome, getting back into a, a law subject after what you just experienced? It was, but I just sort of put it to the side because I realized, okay, I've got to focus on this now. And so I treated it very right. much like a, like a checklist. And that was sort of my mistake is I never really processed what mm. I was going, because I never questioned what I was believing. And so... This is where I started therapy actually two years ago with my psychologist who basically sat me down and I walked in and I was like, I need to do the case. And he was like, wow, how do you know what the case is? And so I very, after my first initial sets of diagnoses, this, is, this goes over two or three sessions, I met every single criteria for a panic disorder in the, in the fifth edition of the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, the DSM-5. And I met five out of seven for a depressive episode because between uni subjects, I'd also had quite extensive period of depression particularly between 2018 and 2019 so like right. this was awful and i thought okay this is that and so the, the first year effectively was getting used to the idea that i couldn't that i was not my thoughts feelings and beliefs and my psychologist drew a brilliant analogy you just you're like you're a great computer you've just got shitty software you need <laughs> And so the first year was just getting comfortable with the fluctuations in how my anxiety and my depression presented itself. So just grounding myself in my body, meditation, the kind of therapy that I wanted was called acceptance commitment therapy, which actually, which is very much, here's, here's what's happening and let's not try to change it. Right. So it was a lot of journaling, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of grounding. And I'm not going to say that any of this was easy. It took a full year i think approximately 
year to year and a half before I was comfortable with challenging the core belief that underwrite that underwrite all of this, the deep sense right. of inadequacy. And because I wasn't ready to, I think therapy is weird. It's quite nonlinear. And so you, and sometimes no matter how hard you hustle, you've got, no matter how good you are at therapy or certain aspects of your life, there are just things that you're not ready to face until you know that the time is right. Yeah, definitely. And so about six months ago, I started actually challenging that belief when I learned, and I, I, that's when I was able to look back and go, all of these events have contributed to my identity. Even though I'm not my identity, it's time to then change the narrative. And so the key takeaway here is you can always change your story at any point. It may not be, it might not be the chapter that you like reading, but it's the chapter that at any point you can pick up the pen and start again. Yeah, interesting. I almost think you could flip that as well and say that sometimes you may think that you're on the right path. You may think you're on the right track with who you are, but in reality, you've just got to dig a bit deeper to realize that maybe you haven't actually figured out who you are just yet. It might not be the fact that you know who you are and who you are is wrong. It might be the fact that you think you know who you are, but you're wrong in that thought. Exactly. So a lot of people don't question their core beliefs, intermediate beliefs, and all of that negative thoughts, which is the core part of CBT, because they've never had a reason to question it. Mm. The only, The only way I could see this was I was 21 and I was thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't act, then this is going to get incredibly serious. How did therapy help you to overcome that? Was it just the exercises or how did it help? I want to correct your language by saying you don't overcome things like this. You live with right. it. Because I think overcoming is sort of a rags to riches kind of tagline that sells because we're particularly in the mindset and of development space because primarily the people behind that are selling a product. So there is a commercial element to that language that I don't particularly agree with. But I just had to learn to be comfortable in understanding that I wasn't my thoughts, feelings and beliefs. My true identity was actually, I was the entity that was able to observe. And this took a lot of practice to get even a glimpse of what my, to even be able to monitor my own thinking through mindfulness strategies. And it was just constant journaling. It was constant reflection. And then I was able to go, okay, what's driving this? And then I was able, because acceptance commitment therapy, which is getting comfortable with your own body and living according to values, and then had loosened a lot of the beliefs, I was then able to start changing them. I still live with it. I have, for example, before recording this podcast, I woke up and I was like, I am so, I am incredibly scared. and I don't know why. And so uh, I thought, okay, yeah. I had to go, okay, let's sit down. Let's meditate and let's see what is actually here. Mm. And so the meditation I used was one called rain, which is to recognize, to allow, to investigate and to nurture. You can find it on YouTube. If you just do, if you just search rain and Tara right together. But I found, I did that and I was like, okay, I'm offering myself compassion at this time. And then I thought, okay, I've, I've sensed the belief coming up here so that I've, since I no longer identify with this, I can see it as a story. 
So what a belief is, is a story we tell about ourselves and the world based, and we give it power because we accept its truth. Right. And so to unlearn it, you have to question the story eventually. You have to get comfortable with the idea of questioning the story, which is using acts as a gateway point and getting comfortable with how all the sensations feel in the body first. And then you have what works for me is having to unlearn it little bit by little bit. And this kind of work doesn't have an end point. I still experience rushes of terror and rushes of anxiety, but also I'm also able to experience more freedom in the midst of that. Yeah, because you understand what it is, what's happening. Exactly. And so what has really shifted for me now is, okay, now I've dealt with the fundamentals. What direction is my life taking? And so Earlier this year, I decided to join the Board of Engaged Youth Disability Network, which is a small Adelaide-based disability organisation. And I think what I learned was not only am I good enough, but there are people who are like me that work together for a purpose greater than myself. Right. That's so, cool. what, so what really helped boost my self-confidence with being law school is doing a lot of mock trial which is getting up there and present, which is writing lengthy written submissions, presenting your case on paper, and then doing that to a mock judge and then trying to convince them that your point of view is the correct one. Right. And so doing all these extracurriculars, being an my law society, really sort of, it sharpened my skills and then implicitly was changing the belief that I am not good enough to I am competent. Right. Or I am worthy. Yeah, that was that's effectively it. That was a very long answer to that question, but <laughs> no, it was good. But I do want to touch on this idea of how therapy doesn't help you overcome things because I would almost disagree in that. For me, it, it there are certain things that I went to see a psychologist for that I no longer experience because of that, and to me, that is overcoming that. Well, I think. This goes back to what you define as everyone has different definitions. I don't, I see overcoming as sort of quite an absolute thing. But I think mm. one thing that really helped me at uni was define your own version of success. Everyone is always, we make our happiness so often conditional on achievements. And it's okay, you've got, a, you've got an ATAR above 90 in high school. Fantastic. Now you need to get a good GPA at uni, and then now you need to do this, and then now you need to do this, and then. We, we end up searching for happiness when we realize that we actually have the capacity for it within ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think that's super powerful because, and this is something that I actually worked on with my psychologist, is there isn't such thing as the future. If you're not happy right now, you're not going to be happy. Like the only time where your happiness should apparent the only time where you should feel happy is in the present because if you're not happy there then you're searching for something that doesn't exist or you're trying to fill a hole based on often at its core which is based in unworthiness or scarcity that may not even once you've uncovered it may not even exist anymore and 80 percent of the time you get sick of it as well 80 percent is not a serious statistic that i found i just made that up off the top of my head <laughs> thought i'd chuck a little disclaimer here's the way i think about it life is a song when you pour yourself into the when you pour yourself into the song, you become part of the music. When you pour yourself into the music, you become part of the symphony. Mm, yeah, interesting. So really, Unpack that for us. 
So part of my work, particularly with active meditation, is this idea that I was separate and that somehow who I was was wrong. So yeah. I had to work by de-identifying those beliefs and then under, and then challenging the rationalizations, which are intermediate beliefs that supported it. So these are rules and assumptions that we create about the words that we can operate successfully in it. Mm. And I think what I did was I realized that I was part of, I realized that I was part of a larger belonging in the sense that as a person, people experience the same fundamental emotions. People yeah. have fundamental adversities that they need to navigate through in the best way for them. And I think realizing that I was part of a belonging, a larger belonging gave my problems space. And from that mindful space, I was then able to, I was then able to question the narrative and then make choices that were value aligned so I could move through the problem rather than overcoming it through sheer force of will. Right. That make yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, now we've got through all of this. What's next for you? How have you now redefined your like purpose and your path? What's next? I think what is next for me is definitely continuing to work on my advocacy advocacy skills. So I participated this year in my criminal law and I got into the quarterfinals because I learned that I love public speaking. I love what I do. So at the moment, I'm focusing on finishing my psychology degree and a couple of law subjects. That's over for the next year and a half. I'm focusing on doing more work with engaged disability network and just generally figuring out what is for me and what isn't for me. Mm. And I think I wanted to. Re I really want to shed the label that as a disabled person that I am somehow inspirational, because what you see in society with people with disabilities is you put them in one of two camps. You put them in the camp of someone who perhaps is defined by their perhaps society views people with disabilities as perhaps someone who is defined by their condition, and because their condition exists their outcomes in life are somehow limited right the other camp that we put people with disabilities in is the self-actualized superstars of the world like mm. dylan alcott and kurt finley and we think oh my gosh they're so inspirational but the reason why that language makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable is because it depends on the context in which it's used first of all i'd be called inspirational for simply walking down the street and for someone who <laughs> yeah, can right. walk i think okay, this makes me uncomfortable because you're still making a value judgment on what I can do and trying to dress it up as a compliment. What you can see of my physical condition is still a yardstick for what you think I can do or a yardstick yeah. for what my worth is to you. Mm. Where it's, it would be more okay if it was sort of used as a byproduct. I think, um, if you are genuinely inspired by who I am and what I do, I'm flattered. But I think we need to think about how we view disability and not use those people as, an, as, a, as objects and inspiration, rather make the efforts to include them as part of broader society. Yeah. Because it's quite jarring being called an inspiration and yet not having access to a bathroom when you need it hmm. or not having yeah, the wow. services. So it's like, you want to look up to me, but also, there's still this unconscious prejudice. Yeah, it's like if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. 
exactly and i think there's so many stories of people with disabilities not getting jobs despite being more qualified than their bodied peers and i think it i think it's because employers are worried about what that might mean for their business in terms of making adjustments but i think things are changing things are definitely changing yeah i think you're really right in the fact that society does view people with disability in just these two stereotypical camps it's like you're disabled and that sucks or you're disabled and that's inspirational and that's mm-hmm. the, that's the two like why can't you just be have a disability but be normal yeah or or live a meaningful life with a disability for me my therapy is incidental to who i am i still need mm-hmm. to go to therapy i still need to go and see a physio twice a week i still have those adjustments because i need them yeah. but that in no way stops me from being a person yeah well that's exactly it you just got dealt a different hand of cards you're still playing that hand exactly. it's just because people can see the disability that they assume you're different no it's just something that is visible to the naked eye exactly and i think a lot of my success as a disabled person has come because of a byproduct of what not only what I've been able to do, but also because I was raised in an incredibly loving and supportive family environment who mm. valued my education. And, and I was in environments, some of, a lot of the time, in, especially around family, that I was valued as a person. Yeah, right. And so I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but we can't really have a conversation about personal success without talking about privilege. Yeah, definitely not. And I think the fact that we're here at all is really, that is privilege in itself. The fact that you and I are talking to each other on a computer screen means we've got definitely a leg up on plenty of other people. And I think a lot of my advice I would give to like my 13 or 18 year old self is don't, don't hustle because no amount of overworking yourself and then putting efforts in that sense is going, it's not, it's not going to make what's meant for you come any faster. And I see a lot of stress, particularly in penultimate and final year law students who are struggling to get jobs because the legal industry is incredibly competitive. And so I know what is, I know that there are options out there for me. I don't know exactly what they are. And I know I need to explore that, but I'm not rushing. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to challenge that though. It's not don't hustle. It's just don't rush because there's exactly. a big difference. Like I think it, if people sit around waiting for stuff to come to them, it's not going to come. You have exactly. to still take the steps that you think is going to get there. It's more just, you need to revise those expectations and understand that the right opportunities will come at the right time. As long as you're putting in the work for those opportunities to be I capitalized think, on. And then once you release yourself from having to be perfect, you can then start exploring what excellence looks like. Mm. Because once you start focusing on the results and you start, looking at the process in this moment as it presents itself then you can start making a slightly different choice and then a different choice and then a different choice and sort of like a ship steering itself onto a different course it feels slight but the long-term mm. outcome is actually quite different yeah definitely and so i think knowing that now puts me a lot at ease because i know that there are things that are meant for me and no amount of and working for and working at a pace that is comfortable and that I can still push myself without wanting to collapse, I guess, makes sense. And that way I can make better and more value aligned choices. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. It's not worth sacrificing contentment for success in the present because you never know if you're even going to be around to see 
that contentment come at the end of it? Mm. Like, what's the point of hustling for 10, 15, 20 years doing nothing but hustling, assuming that that's going to give you the best life at the end of that 20 years for you to pass away in 19 years? What's the point? Yeah. So my future is definitely, it's still uncertain. I don't, I know I definitely wanted to work in advocacy capacity. My original dream was to go to the SA bar and work as a barrister and that's still on the table. But even knowing I have options with and outside of that is quite empowering. Yeah, I'd say so. Let's jump over to 10 under 10, wrap her up. Okay. So question one, do you read? Yes, I read. What's your favorite book? gosh there, there are many many books that have really spoken to me and i think one of my favorites is radical compassion by tara brock and she took and she in a way it's she talks about the concept of recognizing allowing investigating and nurturing and uses that as a, a model for not only meditation but creating compassion for great for not only ourselves but the world nice that really would you rather me. Would you rather spend a day with the best psychologist in the industry or the best lawyer? I'm going to answer this with a lawyerly. It depends on the context. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but I think both. The context is you get to spend one day with them and learn as much as you can about them. Oh my God. I would probably spend it with, I'd probably spend it with a lawyer, honestly, because that's more where I want to go. And I'm, I can, I probably could make something more concrete out of it i guess at this point okay good answer do you invest your money no i do not invest my money i've sort of i've been a bit reluctant on the investing front because of the risk and if you've done behavioral economics anyone you you would know what prospect theory is which is basically the desire to avoid loss so at this point i'm not sure what i would invest my money in and how and i think that's definitely Mm. educating myself in the financial aspects of that is critical lucky you follow uncle nathan yeah. <laughs> um do you have any regrets i used to have regrets but honestly any everything that's happened to me like having to work through the fatigue of disability having to create my own identity and sense of self as a person with a disability and all of the physical and psychological outcomes of that have gotten me to this exact point so yeah. even if I could go back and change things and perhaps get better grades or whatever, I don't think I would change anything. I love that. I, th- oh, I love that. You see, <laughs> mistakes don't have to be regrets. They can just be mistakes. Mistakes can be a learning experience. You don't have to regret that experience. You just learn that it wasn't the right decision. Or that you did your best with what you had at the time. Yeah, Exactly um where are we up to what excites you the most about the next 12 months what excites me the most is the possibility that i can explore things again so because as a person with a disability who's a bit of a workaholic i tend to get habituated into constantly studying and achieving so i have this app on my phone made up and it's all these different social groups for different interests so i'm going to meet up with a friend fairly soon and talk about what what's out there for me that I could explore in terms of interest entirely non-work related. Cool. I, I actually leads on to the next question quite well. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? <laughs> Study. No, no. So I, I love spending time with people. So when I can getting the opportunity, this is going to sound weird to anyone who is in Sydney going to the pub. 
<laughs> What's that? I forgot. <laughs> exactly. So like spending time with people, doing a lot of extracurricular activities and just lots of walking. I really enjoy. I really enjoy cooking because yeah, cool. my mother has an Italian background. So I'm learning all of the classic sort of French and Italian dishes I can make for myself. And cooking is so empowering because it's really an act of love presented in the form of food. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, what's your dream job? My dream job is definitely to be a barrister, which is a cool advocate and a legal academic because law has the potential to change lives. Mm, if definitely. Or in the country, we wouldn't have the ability to regulate human conduct. So, and there are areas in which the law particularly falls short. And I think, well, I don't know what I want to practice in. Specifically, I have clerked at Women's Lawyers in Adelaide and the IP and banking teams. Yeah. Which was amazing. I know that every day you work as a professional like a lawyer, even in commercial law, you make a difference. And, and you advocate every single day. And that's what excites me. Cool. What would be your dream place to live? <laughs> wow, this is... I've never been asked this question before because I've never lived anywhere outside of Adelaide. Explore. Let your imagination run wild. Okay. You can say Adelaide. I think I would... I think my dream place to live would probably... I'm not going to say live, but definitely go for holidays. Definitely go to Europe and just particularly Italy and understand how how people interact in that culture, which is so different from here. Mm, good answer. Question 10, my last question. Who inspires you? This is going to be quite a lengthy list. So, because everyone inspires me for different reasons. So, my family inspire me because they have given me an unconditional base of support and they have instilled a lot of the values that I still hold dear with me today. So I would not be where I am without them. Dylan Alcott inspires me because he makes me as a person with a disability feel seen. Cool. Michael Kirby, the former high court judge, inspires me because he, he it's the understanding that the law can change, that his interpretations of the law, even though they were dissenting, so not legally binding, were very powerful. And it's mm. this idea that one voice can change the world. And I think the present moment inspires me. Because as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we have to we have to live the actual moment for only this moment is life. Well, that is quite possibly the best answer to that question I've had after 20 episodes. <laughs> Big wheels keep on turning, proud Alex keep on turning. <laughs> that's a perfect way to sign it off Alex thank you so much for oh, joining me on the Post School Podcast absolute pleasure thank you so much sweet as another story shared and another lesson learned if you've made it this far I'd be stoked if you could take a minute to give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already with your support we can both empower more young people to chase their dreams if you have any questions about today's episode, make sure to jump on Instagram and send me a DM at Uncle Nathan Co. Or head to the website at UncleNathan.com to join our community. All right, enough from me. Thank you so much for your support and I'll catch you next time.